Today's podcast is brought to you by Vivo Barefoot. You guys know I rock my Vivos whenever I'm not running, and I'm pleased to announce that they just released their brand new revolutionary shoe, the Modus Strength, which is the first ever zero drop barefoot strength training shoe. It's made for moving naturally during high impact workouts with added protection and stability that doesn't sacrifice the barefoot feel and benefits. It is breathable, lightweight, and comfortable, and I use the Modus for every strength session in the gym. I used to wear old running shoes that were beaten down while going to the gym, and to say the Modus has been a massive upgrade would be an understatement. The whole point of going to the gym for me is to strengthen my inefficiencies, and that is exactly what Vivos do when it comes to your feet and lower body. My feet personally have never felt stronger, and using the Modus Strength for these gym sessions has been a big game changer for me. You guys can use code THERUNNINGEFFECT15 to get 15% off of your purchase of the Modus Strength or any of Vivo Barefoot's wide selection of shoes. You guys can scroll down in the show notes or go directly to vivobarefoot.com. Again, that is code THERUNNINGEFFECT15 to get 15% off of your purchase. And also feel free to shoot me a DM or email. If you have any questions in regards to the Modus Strength or any of Vivo Barefoot's shoes, I absolutely love Vivo Barefoot. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to work with them. They have been a game changer for me in terms of strengthening my feet. And I hope you guys will check them out and their products out because I do believe that your running and life can be impacted by using their products. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Running Effect Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Schleter, and today on the podcast is the one and only Galahad Clark. Galahad is a seventh generation cobbler. His ancestors founded Clark Shoes, and he is now the driving force behind Vivo Barefoot, which makes shoes that allow the wearer to enjoy the same range of movement and sensation as if they were barefoot. In 2022, Vivo's 10th year business, they sold 773,000 pairs of shoes, which is absolutely remarkable. I love today's conversation because I always enjoy the conversations where I kind of get to pick apart a business and hear about what went into it and what made it successful and the different ups and downs that went into the successful business. And I certainly got to do that today with Galahad and kind of hear the behind the scenes story of Vivo Barefoot. But in addition to this, Galahad takes me through the history of shoes, which was absolutely fascinating as someone who loves shoes and particularly running shoes and just hearing about how far they've come was super interesting. He also discusses the origins of Vivo Barefoot, the science of your feet and how to strengthen them and so much more. I absolutely love today's conversation and hope you will take the time to listen to it in full. There is a lot of interesting information in this conversation and I'm confident you'll walk away from today's conversation knowing how your feet work better and some of the different shoes that you can use to strengthen them and the history of shoes. You're going to learn a lot in today's conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy it as much as we did having it. One final note for you, I'd greatly appreciate it if you give us a follow and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and then send today's episode or any of the episodes in the past that you've enjoyed with a friend, a teammate, a family member, someone who you think think would enjoy it and find value and benefit from it. With all of those notes aside, I hope you all enjoy my conversation with the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, Galahad Clark. Galahad, welcome to the Running Effect podcast. How are you doing this morning? Great. It's um, afternoon here in sunny England. <laughs> um, so good, you know, good. Thanks for waking up early and, uh, in Austin to do this with me. Yeah. Is that something that you run into quite frequently with meetings or just other things in life where it is a big time difference or not so much as most of your contacts in the UK and Europe? No, no. Well, we, we sell shoes all over the world. So whether it's Australians or Californians, we often uh, 
are communicating at odd times. <laughs> is there, in your recent memory, is there a particularly odd instance of having to wake up early or stay up late for a meeting? Oh, um, I, I actually did have to do a podcast about a couple of weeks ago, about 11 o'clock in the evening, my time. So um, this is much better than that. Um <laughs> Uh, at least uh, in terms of hopefully how copious mentis I'm going to be because I, uh, you know, I was I was not a hundred percent without uh, a whiskey in my hand. There you go. There you go. But I'm completely sober right now. Let's go back in time to young Galahad. Can you first off give some context to the listener of your family's background? You're a seventh generation cobbler. Can you explain what that term means for people who maybe don't know what it means and just what that was like growing up in that family? Yeah, that's right. So my family come from a small rural part of England, a place called Somerset in the southwest of England. It's, it's now most famous probably for the Glastonbury Music Festival, which is, I was literally born on the adjacent fields to where that festival is. And yeah, they, they were sheep farmers and that area is full of sheep farming and they made the first Clark's shoe called the Brown Peter in 1825 from a sheepskin and it was basically a sort of sheepskin slipper but yeah by the time I arrived on the scene um, in the late 70s uh, Clark's it was actually quite a golden period for Clark's so there was the whole village was uh, you know full of Clark's um, employees and buildings and offices and um you know, the, the whole community had really been built by Clarks over the last 150 to 200 years. So it was having, a, you know, my name was, was, I don't know, I guess a privilege in those, in those times. Um, but then it was in my teenage years that Clarks actually got into trouble. And they had 30 shoe factories in the UK. And it was in the 90s that sort of people started making shoes in Asia. And so much cheaper foreign imports started competing and the family business couldn't compete with the UK made shoes anymore. And so the business got into quite a lot of trouble. And I witnessed it in the 90s in my teenage years, nearly have a hostile takeover. And so uh, I remember my father and you know a lot of his relatives going through an enormous amount of stress, it just survived the takeover, but it was taken over by outside management um, so the family stopped in any way managing the business in my teenage years. And that was an enormously stressful, difficult period to see this beautiful business that had been built for six generations, nearly 200 years, and to witness it sort of really go into hard, challenging times. And so in many ways, I actually was desperate to get away from all of that. And so I actually um, applied for, and, and got a scholarship to come and study in America. So the sort of minute I could, I left. And I was at school in the local town and everything, and my name was plastered everywhere. So I actually ran across the pond as quickly as I could <laughs> when I was 18 years old. And yes, yeah, so, so uh, you know, although I really admire and, and respect, especially what my uh, four forefathers did in building this beautiful business based on Quaker principles. Um, I also witnessed, you know, what a beautiful thing being somewhat tainted by outside management, just running the thing for 
with, with very short-term thinking rather than the long-term thinking of how the business was built originally. Can you dive deeper into the aspect that you just shared of wanting to run away from it as quick as you could in the business to ultimately starting Vivo? What happened in those between years that made you run back to kind of the industry? Obviously very different as we'll get into, but still kind of your roots. Yeah, sure. It's a little bit of a black sheep. I mean, well, I, I was in America, I was studying anthropology. I thought I wanted to be an academic. I mean, you know, living in Chapel Hill in North Carolina was some of the most idyllic moments of my, of my life. And I still kick myself in many ways for ever leaving Chapel Hill. Jesse Helms was the senator back then, and um, they were petitioning him to build a zoo in North Carolina. And he said, oh, you, we don't need a zoo in North Carolina. We're just going to build a fence around Chapel Hill and charge admission. <laughs> and I, I was a very happy wild animal in that zoo, I must say. But anyway, um, while, while I was there, we were now we we're now in the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, Wu-Tang Clan were the flavor of the month, as it were, the flavor of the years. Um, and like every middle-class white boy, I was really into late 90s hip-hop. And Wu-Tang were the kind of epitome of, of that. Um, and they were really into Clark's Wallabies. And so I thought, gosh, this is my chance to go and meet the Wu-Tang Clan. So I sort of shamelessly uh, traded on my connections to Clark's and set the meeting up with Wu-Tang and the uh, Clark's American management. And uh, needless to say, that meeting did not go very well. They did not see eye to eye uh, on just about anything you can possibly imagine. These very waspy Bostonians sort of meeting, you know, these Staten Island hip hop superstars at the very height of their powers was a challenging meeting, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I ended up actually helping them just make some prototypes and develop some shoes because I was still, you know, they were, they were still my heroes and I kind of wanted to do anything to, to, to help them. So that kind of gave me the shoemaking bug. Needless to say, you know, Wu Shoes was, was not a great business success, but I did get into developing shoes and making shoes with them. And then I actually did go and live in China and and, and worked in a, I, I was really interested in Chinese philosophy and the medical anthropology I'd studied at university all led me back to sort of Chinese medicine and Chinese healing. And so I was really interested in, in all of that. And I'd studied holistic health on that level. But then when I was there, my my mother got sick. So I came back to England to, to be with her. And then when I was in England, another little shoemaking opportunity popped up because obviously most of my contacts were in shoe world, as it were. So I thought I'd give this a go and just spend a bit of time on it while my mother was um, going through her trials and tribulations. And that was a company called Terraplana. And Terraplana was the nest in which Vivo was born. Was Vivo was the cuckoo in Terraplana's nest. And I, I was in, and then I threw a, a girlfriend through love, I got involved in another shoemaking project. So before I knew it, I'd left Asia, I'd left all the medical anthropology and sort of Chinese healing. And um, I was suddenly embroiled in two big shoe projects <laughs> back in the UK. 
and um yeah the rest as they say is history there you go there you go so you kind of took us through your personal start and development and journey within the shoe world you said something earlier on though i think you said in 1825 was when clarks came out with their first shoe and you mentioned how you kind of mentioned what it was it was from sheeple i think you said now can you take me through kind of the history of shoes as you know it and kind of the development and how what we see vivos today and if you're listening and you don't know what they are look them up and you'll see what they look like probably didn't look too far off they probably look a lot nicer and fancier but at least in terms of the design don't look too far off those shoes from the 1800s versus what we're most modernly seeing in the 2020s i think you probably have to go back about a hundred thousand years um give or take fifty thousand years maybe um and humans you know were, were bipedal and um depending on which version of ancient history you believe, we started started moving upright. And, and one of the things that became our advantage as, as bipedal humans was our ability to endurance run, which I, I know you're obviously um, a fantastic exponent of, and all humans would have been fantastic endurance runners. And, you know, we were not blessed with hooves or pads, on our feet and our feet are very sensory organs for a reason there's just as many nerves in the soles of our feet as there are in our hands and the part of your brain that gets information from your feet is the same size as the part of your brain that gets information from your hands so the earliest shoes as would have been tools basically to help us on these um, extraordinary um, endurance running that we undertook and Obviously, when you're chasing down an antelope for eight hours across the plains of Africa and the savannas and the deserts and the camel thorns, etc., etc., humans invented these tools to obviously help them be able to undertake these extraordinary um, feats of endurance. And, and actually, it was that hunting, that, that successful hunting and that, that efficient hunting uh, before we obviously developed more more advanced um let's call them weapons, um, you know, that our ability to be able to run down an animal over the course of a day, the, our ability to stay in a pack of humans and communicate and then share all that extra fatty food was when we went through this incredible period of brain development. And, you know, I won't go into all the details, but ultimately, you know, that was a sort of core building block of the Homo sapien journey. And as we left Africa, um, and depending on who you believe, we let's say we left Africa about 40,000 years ago. Um, we started wandering up the up the Nile and out into the Middle East and up into India and, you know, obviously populated the whole world. We started crossing mountains. We started living up in the Arctic. And so we started making footwear from you know, whatever local skins and materials we could find. And the first peoples of America were making moccasins from bison skins. The um, Sami people up in the Arctic would have been making their shoes from reindeer skins. Um, you know, the, the people of India would have been making their shoes from buffalo. Um, the, the people living in rainforests and more, more 
uh, humid climates would have made, made their shoes from woven materials, but they were all just basic foot coverings that allowed the foot to do its natural thing, person by person, foot by foot. And that was the way it was for thousands of years. And there was lots and lots of great shoe development and innovation over all those years. And one of my favorite one is, is that reindeer moccasin up in the Arctic. Like those those shoes are made from the skin of the reindeer below the knee because that skin is obviously particularly designed to basically be in snow all all day long for the reindeer. So it's the, the 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 hair follicles are particularly hollow and have a particularly good lofting warming quality. And so the Sami people made their shoes from just that particular part of the the reindeer the, the the skin below the knee joint and it's a really difficult shape if you can imagine if you if you it's effectively like taking off a pair of socks off a um off a reindeer um and then fashioning those socks in quite an awkward which is already starting as quite an awkward shape into a beautiful pair of moccasins and they don't waste a square centimeter of material in the making of those shoes I don't even know them, but they have the sort of quite extraordinary rolled up toes that, that and, and they were designed in such a way that the hair went in two different directions. So they had grip going up the hills and down the hills and they wore them bare feet, except for just with hay as insulation in, you know, unlike in Austin, where I know it's been plus a hundred, you know, there is, um, I don't know what it's in Fahrenheit, but in, in, um, in centigrade, it's minus 40 degrees centigrade, you know, for a lot of the year. And these extraordinary shoes keep the Sami people warm through those extreme climates. Incredible shoemaking and nothing we've created in the modern world comes close. So anyway, um, that was what shoemaking was like all over the world for thousands and thousands of years. And it's then relatively recently, as civilization started to pop up, and actually if you look at some of the ancient civilizations, um, let's say, you know, depending on which which part of uh, who you believe, there were arguably civilizations 10 to 15,000 years ago that were even more advanced than civilizations as we know them today. But if you look at all those ancient hieroglyphs and all those ancient images of those very ancient people that have built those extraordinary structures all over the world, they were almost never wearing shoes. And actually one of the kind of you know, coordinating ideas is that they really understood the power of the Earth's resonant frequencies. And so actually just putting the, the, the importance of being barefoot on the Earth was understood from a health point of view for thousands of years. The, the Egyptians, the Indians through Ayurvedic traditions, uh, and even the first peoples of America understand from a spiritual point of view that you should never have more than one skin between your feet and the earth because being connected to the earth was, as the, the ancient people understood, was an essential part of healthy, natural living. So fast forward a few more thousand years and we started, you know, horse riding and um, started getting into building palaces and all kinds of ceremonial behavior. But it was horse riding and stirrups that brought about the introduction of very pointy shoes with, with heels. And that was a great status thing to have a horse and to, to ride around in uh, heeled pointy shoes. Um, and 
you know, there's there's quite a lot of work showing that, you know, one of the things that kept the aristocrats of old Europe aristocrats was that all the kids were brought up raising horses, which is an incredible intelligence development tool for kids. And so, and that was one of the ways that the class structures were kept separate because for a kid to grow up sort of managing a horse was, was actually a really great educational tool. Not to, not not least that they could ride around on a horse and have sort of uh, all that superiority. So so heels and pointed shoes came in, you know, ostensibly with horse riding, and then all kinds of other status and ceremonial peacocking came along with lots of other shoes and lots of other sort of kinds of extraordinary garments. So then let's go fast forward to maybe 150 years ago and and the the Victorian England. People were, were then making adaptions of that and, and what I would call hobnail boots, quite quite stiff, leather, heeled, smart shoes to the first people that would, would have arrived in New Amsterdam would have been wandering around in. Um, and, and, the, and those sort of smart heeled shoes became the status sort of uh, uniform of, of, of the age, shall we say. So most people who were working and had money and were doing kind of well in society, if you could put it that way, not necessarily doing good, good, but doing well, were walking around in these sort of heeled pointy shoes. And, um, and, and then we've, let's fast forward to the 20th century, to the middle of the 20th century, um, and now in the beginning of the 20th century, we see the first introduction of rubberized shoes, vulcanized rubber shoes, which was invented by Mr. Converse, Mr. Chuck Taylor. And obviously all the NBA played in those, those kind of Converse rubberized shoes back in the day. Adidas appeared, um, but you know, obviously all the original Adidas shoes were actually just leather sold either football boots or, or, or running spikes, you know, of the people like Jesse Owens wearing in the Berlin Olympics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and still, but the, still the everyday shoe of the day was sort of rather pointy heeled shoes that originated from uh, horse riding. And then, you know, Phil Knight and Bill Bowman came along and the original Nikes made in the 1960s were, were very flat, no underfoot technology, quite there for sort of track spikes, basically. And Bowerman, as I understood it, really believed in sort of uh, training his athletes as barefoot as possible. But then as they started to build the business and they got really excited about sort of launching the jogging revolution uh, in the 1970s, 1960s, 70s in, in America, and they were encouraging more and more people to go out jogging, go out running. And they noticed that all these people were getting injured and so they called in a group of doctors at the time and said, what, you know, what's happening here? Well, you know, we're making all these wonderful shoes. We're getting everyone to go out running, but everyone's getting injured. And the doctor said, well, the problem is that everyone's walking around in heeled, pointy shoes. So when they move to your low, flat shoes, it's too much of a, a, an adaption for them. So uh, you need to make your shoes, your, your sports shoes, closer to their everyday shoes. So Nike introduced um, sort of raised heels and, and more and more padding under the shoes and more and more structure and, you know, obviously things like air bubbles and 
etc etc and so began the advent of undershoe sports technology not that not that long ago right we're, we're talking you know 60 years ago at most and so now for the last 60 years you know we've been in what i would call a matrix of shoe technology where nearly all the technology that goes into shoes and there's been more and more and more crazy technology going into shoes is there to fix the problems caused by the shoes themselves um and so yeah we're, we're in this kind of weird state where the shoe industry is obsessed with all kinds of interesting technologies but ultimately they're there to fix problems caused by the shoes themselves and so i would say that you know humans lived very very happily with no underfoot shoe technology for thousands and thousands of years all over the world in all climates in all ways shapes and forms um you know and, and if, if you were if you got injured back then then you'd be you'd be toast right you'd be food basically um and so it wasn't an option to actually get injured um but you know here we are in the modern world with you know the most extraordinary technologies in the shoe industry and yet probably more people injured than ever and you know can draw your own conclusions from that can you kind of explain where vivo barefoot comes in that timeline of shoe history you were starting in 2012 <laughs> take me through your mission and also specifically from an athletic point of view because that's kind of where you chronicled the the shoe history history of shoes how vivo kind of goes back to some of our roots and origins and fixes some of the issues that we've seen recently in the last 60, 70 years? Well, arguably, um, Vivo is just making shoes in the same way that humans made shoes for thousands of years. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the problems have arguably only occurred in the last 100 years or so. And actually, Clark's in the 19th century, in the 1870s, um, were, were really into making very soft flexible shoes and if you look at some of their advertising campaigns from the 1870s and 1880s um it almost reads like barefoot shoe campaign of today and you know for whatever reason you know the whole world kind of tried to emancipate themselves from nature in the 20th century and got really dazzled by technology and um and clark's included so, you know, Vivo and many, and, and I, I started off in the shoe industry, um, and I always learned about shoes and things growing up, but I, but I learned about normal shoes, and I learned, and I wore quite normal shoes, and my feet were quite weak and deformed, like, frankly, everybody's feet in the West, um, as I arrived in adulthood, and, and the first two or three shoe projects I did were normal shoes that were um, very quite different from barefoot so i was sort of i was interested in sustainability i was interested in eco fashion i was interested in trying to make things at least from a more ecological point of view but the truth is and, and i have to say this is the truth for most people in the shoe industry no, nobody really actually understands foot anatomy or even biomechanics on many many levels myself included and i would have to say a lot of my family members included um and so it was a childhood friend of mine that came to me with the idea 
and he'd gotten a pair of the old Nike Harachis. He was a student at the Royal College of Art in London, and he was kept on getting injured playing sport, like a lot of people. And his dad was an Alexander Technique teacher, which is a postural alignment therapy uh, approach. And uh, he realized that, and which is practiced barefoot. And so he realized he never felt better than when he was barefoot. So he thought, you know, why am I putting on these big clunky sneakers all the time to play sport and getting injured? And then when I take them off and do this postural alignment work barefoot, I never feel better. He sliced the soles of a pair of Nike Arachis stitched on a moccasin kind of sole on the bottom that was made from a tennis racket cover and he brought it to me and said look this is the way shoes should be made and um yeah i just instinctively loved the idea um started we started making prototypes we started wearing them i started kind of feeling it and then one thing led to another and i started learning about anatomy biomechanics and um the more I learned, the more you can't unlearn, as it were. And we, Vivo Barefoot had gestated for quite a few years before 2012. 2012 was when we launched as a standalone brand, but we were at it for you know, quite a few years before then. And, and I would call those my education years. And I met an extraordinary number of wonderful educators who took me on this incredible journey, not least um, a guy called Lee Saxby, who, um, who also was a big part in educating Chris McDougall, um, a guy called Dan Lieberman, who was also kind of connected to those guys. He was an evolutionary biologist at Harvard. Um, there was a professor at Harvard called Irene Davis, who ran the, the, the National Running Center, um, and a whole host of other people all over the world that gave me this extraordinary education in, in feet and biomechanics. And, um, and the more I experienced, the more I learned, and the theory started to match the practice. You know, it was in 2012 that we gave up everything else we were doing and just went for it on Vivo Betha. And, you know, here we are today, still going at it. Can you explain for maybe someone who hasn't seen the shoe or isn't fully bought into the ideology, how Vivos reconnect you to your natural foot strike, your natural range of motion. And you explained how, you know, modern day shoes don't do that. But can you explain how Vivo does do that? And just some of the different elements of how it's constructed and why that's, you know, perfect for your foot health. So the principle is with Vivo that there's we, we, we try to make shoes as close to the barefoot condition as possible. So there's no magic in the shoes at all. In fact, we take all the shoe magic out of the shoes, you know, and we like to say that the most advanced piece of technology that's ever gone into a shoe, that will ever go into a shoe, is the human foot. And so all we're trying to do is allow the human foot to, to work um, in its natural function. And so so what does that mean? So the, 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 the body it's, itself is made up of three main systems, the skeletal system, your 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 bones and your skeleton and, and and that expresses itself in the foot with 26 bones and most importantly what we call the great toe and the big toe and arguably all the bones are connected from the big toe up through the, the rest of the the skeletal system uh, you then have hundreds of muscles and tendons in your feet that obviously then connect to all the muscles and tendons and fascia that go all the way through your body um, and then, of course, the nervous system and the feet are one of the most sensory and feeling parts of the body, 
hence sort of Japanese foot torture and um, you know being able to tickle people's feet and you know they are undoubtedly a very very sensory feeling part of the body and that's for a reason you have hundreds of thousands of nerve endings in your feet and so you take your average shoe and it systematically basically undermines all three of those systems so by squeezing the toes and putting up toe spring takes the big toe and shoves it up against the other toes suspends it up in the air and so the big toe is designed to be your body's pivot and anchor and you suppose you know really all the energy goes through your big toes it's four times as thick and four times as dense as your other metatarsals your other toes so it's designed to get a real beating but nearly every modern shoe makes it almost impossible to actually use your big toe and not only that it actually deforms your big toe and so many people have bunions and very very weak big toes um, in general and then any kind of arch support or any kind of restriction to the dynamism of the foot the foot is designed to splay and contract in motion um, any kind of restriction to that movement effectively is like putting your arm in a cast it's like putting your foot in a cast so the hundreds of muscles and tendons the fascia if it's not allowed to to, to be dynamic if you don't use it you lose it muscles get weak the fascia gets tense um, and the less your foot is allowed to move in movement with each step then the weaker and weaker those muscles get um, and it is literally like having your arm in a cast and then finally you know anything more than about 10 millimeters of padding under your under your foot and you're starting to um, garble the nerve ending readings um, of the of the foot in motion so you know you can stamp down heavily on your on your heels on a marble floor and not feel anything whereas if you're barefoot and you stamp down heavily on your heels on a marble floor you'd feel it and you wouldn't do it anymore <laughs> it's a bit like having a helmet on and if you whacked yourself on the head with a hammer you could you could you know you could whack yourself away with a hammer or with a helmet on for you know for a long time um and it wouldn't sort of do you any obvious pain but you can be sure it's rattling your brain around and not doing your neck muscles any good etc cetera, etc cetera. same thing with shoes it allows you to do allow unnatural forces into your feet that you just wouldn't allow if you were actually feeling the ground it's the same way with a with a head helmet and obviously you know in america you've got all these problems with concussions and the national football league and you know people just because of helmets whacking into each other way harder than they'd ever would and but it doesn't mean the brain damage isn't happening and in a, in a slightly different but same way it's the same thing with padded shoes and feet and the rest of the body so um you know basically every barefoot shoe for the last 50,000 years has um just allowed the foot to feel the ground allowed the muscles and tendons to splay and contract really naturally and have your natural foot strength and allowed your big toe to really be the body's pivot and anchor in motion so yeah there's no there's no magic in vivos the magic is you playing devil's advocate here for some listeners who i'm sure are having this thought right now i think a lot of people have the thought that they need 
running shoes for quote-unquote protection. They need the, the massive stack heights to protect their feet. What would you say in response to those people? You do. If, if, you're, um, if you're used to running in padded shoes uh, and your technique is habituated to padded shoes, then it's good to have padded shoes. Um, and if your feet are not used to being in the barefoot condition, then almost definitely they'll be at, at best weak, but at worst probably quite deformed as well. And so, you know, if you, if you have relatively weak, unhealthy feet and bad technique, then I would recommend padded running shoes for sure. Now, you know, the question is, is it worth trying to you know, to take the journey to a natural way. I would also suggest it's worth that. Now, you know, obviously runners are very impatient. Um, and, you know, someone said to me that, you know, it'd be like changing my golf swing in the middle of the season or something. Um, you know, so it is, it is a, it, you know, you would have to make changes to take away the padding and move happily and healthily. And, is it worth it? I, I would suggest yes. Can everybody be bothered to do it? Apparently, absolutely not. <laughs> well, Galahad, here's <laughs> been my approach to Vivo. I'd love to hear your perspective and thoughts on this. Yeah. So for me, I've, I've grown up wearing running shoes, you know, standard of the mill. You walked me through all the history. That's me. And so to this day, I still wear running shoes for the exact reason that you mentioned of like, it, I would probably get injured from the dramatic, drastic change to it, right? So I thought I fully embodied into what Vivo is doing. So how do I approach it to not get injured, right? And so when I first came across the company, I had this kind of realization that in running, in sports, a lot of times it's what you're doing when you're not doing the sport that affects the sport the most. So when you're not running, you're recovering and you're maybe in the gym, strength training, et cetera. And that a lot of times affects your running more than the running itself. And so I thought with this 24 seven athlete mindset, that's where Vivo comes in for me, where when I'm not running, the only shoes I wear are Vivo, whether it's going to the grocery store, going to church, going on a walk, I only wear Vivos because you're still strengthening your feet when you're walking, right? And then through that, I'm kind of building up tolerance in my feet and my lower tendons to eventually maybe make the switch. But even for someone, I think this might be good to speak to, even for someone who will never run in Vivos, if that's a listener, it's just they're completely turned off to the idea. I think there's such merit in just walking around in them. Because again, all runners know the stronger your tendons are, the stronger your Achilles is, the stronger your big toe is, the faster you're going to run because the stronger your feet are, the stronger your body is, you're going to run faster. And I personally, in my personal experience, my feet have never felt more strong after wearing Vivos for consecutive months. So could you maybe speak to that aspect that it doesn't necessarily need to be zero to a hundred, but you could actually implement the shoes in other ways that are actually quite easy. It's very easy to walk. It's a, such a comfortable shoe to walk around in, in my opinion. And, and I, you know, it's lovely to hear about your experience. I'd love to hear more, more about it. And I couldn't, you know, I've, I've said it better myself, you know, the best thing you can possibly do, and whether it's Vivos or even just completely barefoot, is just spend as much time as possible barefoot, just walking around in your everyday life. Um, and then, like you say, what, what you actually then end up doing your competitive running in or your tennis or basketball or football or whatever it is, as you say, you know, the, the stronger and healthier your feet are, you know, no matter what shoes you're wearing for game day, 
the, the, the better off you'll be. And, and no one can dispute that. I don't think that's that's fairly black and white. And we see this now more and more with elite athletes all over the world that are using barefoot as as part of their everyday life to, like you say, get their feet strong, get them healthy. And then they, you know, keeping to the, and in some, some cases, because they're paid millions of dollars to wear whatever shoe they need to wear um, when they're um, on the court or um, on the field or on the track or whatever it may be. And, you know, we're, we're in, you know, I'm aware of a number of NBA superstars, NFL um, superstars, hockey league superstars, uh, tennis, you know, some of the very, very best tennis players in the world, you know, who, who are just incorporating barefoot into their everyday lives because it just, you know, just makes sense on every level. And none of them are obviously wearing barefoot shoes on, you know, on on the TV yet. <laughs> but, but um but they get it and, and 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 that's a growing number of people because you know it's and it doesn't you know like i say like it's you know we're, we're, we're happy to obviously be in the conversation and we're trying to make the best barefoot shoes we can but it's really about being barefoot actually being as close to barefoot as possible it's not our shoes are magical per se you know there's, there are other barefoot brands out there so i don't want this almost to be a conversation about vivo I do think we make the nicest barefoot shoes out there, but I do too. regardless, <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever ones you want to wear, you know, it's, the point is just to wear as little shoe as possible. And the research shows just by walking around in as, as close to barefoot as possible, just walk, no special exercises, nothing at all, just walking around for six months, your feet will get 60% stronger. And that's not to say barefoot is this magical thing that makes your feet stronger. The point is that the average person is walking around with feet that are 60% weaker than they should be. Mm. Um, and and I, I, I'd love to hear about your experience, but a lot of people's feet, they start to change shape, they start to, because the muscles start to reactivate. And it's not that they're getting stronger, they're just getting back to their natural shape and their natural strength. And, you know, they, 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 they notice that difference quite quickly. Totally. Because it, it is literally the equivalent of taking your arm out of a cast and starting to use your arm again. And the first thing you do, you wouldn't go and play tennis the next day, right? You just take it easy. You'd start with just gentle arm movements and you build it up slowly, slowly, slowly. And tennis would be one of the last things you do on your road to recovery after having your arm in a cast for a while. It's the same with feet and, and running and, and, and elites, you know, and any kind of elite sport or competitive sport, should we say. Yeah, so, a, a great visual example for people in my experience, and I've heard this has been the experience of other people. A few months after wearing Vivos, I've noticed my feet can spread out, like unusually spread out. Like my toes, not my feet, excuse me, my toes can spread out unusually wide. And it's exactly to your point of, when they're squished in normal shoes, you're not actually strengthening them. But for me, walking around in them, doing all my gym sessions in them, like wearing them legitimately 100% of the time when I'm not running, they're constantly being strengthened and you know regaining that natural range of motion that they were meant to be in. And I'd love to hear you speak on this. Um, something unique about Vivo, I'm not familiar with any other barefoot shoe companies, so I'm not sure if other ones have it too, but I think it's unique to you guys is that you guys have such a wide range of shoes, right? You have boots, you have shoes that people can wear for nice events or church. 
Um, I wear mine to church or specific models. I wear a specific kind of the gym. I wear a specific kind when I'm walking. You guys have such a wide range and selection of shoes that it's not just we sell two pairs of shoes and they probably don't look that good to go to church or go to a nice event and you can only walk in them. You guys are like, no, we've got, I don't know how many models, but a bunch of models made for different scenarios. So can you kind of speak to that as well, that there's really a barefoot shoe for anything you do? Yeah. You know, like, like we said earlier that, um, you know, humans have wandered all over the world, um, in all kinds of temperatures in all kinds of terrains and figured out a way to make, appropriate footwear for whatever they're doing for thousands of years and um and obviously in the modern world we have crazier setups where the cities are full of more concrete and um you know we're arguably going up crazier to mountains and into deeper jungles than we might normally um have, have done in our everyday lives back in the day so yeah the idea is that obviously the the, the principle is always the same that the the shoe is just allowing the foot to do its natural things. It's always completely flat. It's always, the sole is always as thin as possible. And we only compromise thinness to add grip. And obviously, especially in soft ground, soft terrain, and when you're making hiking boots or trail running shoes or whatever, then we obviously add grip for safety. Um, and then the upper is, again, depending on the terrain, the, t the temperature, Whatever you're trying to do, if it's lateral movements or hiking up into the mountains, if it's temperate, if it's um, uh, in, in jungle or desert, then there's different appropriate types of footwear for the different biomes. And then, of course, you know, we live in a, in a world where it's appropriate to wear different looking styles, depending on whatever kind of work you do. Um, yeah, so we many ways that started off just being selfish that once you get into it it's hard to get out of it and so we wanted a pair of we wanted shoes for everything that we were were doing we didn't, we didn't want to go back to normal shoes um so we started just adding these sort of barefoot shoes to whatever it was whether it was a water shoe or um a hiking shoe or a gym shoe or a court shoe or a um, trail running shoe and then we got into swim runs a lot you know where you you swim with the shoes on so we figured out how to make shoes with really low wet weight and you know we're, we're particularly excited about a project we're doing now called the environmental uh, ecological survival collection esc where we're trying to make the absolute pinnacle boot for each of the biomes and so we've we've just launched uh, the forest. We've just come out with an amazing jungle boot. We've got a desert boot on the way, and we've been working really hard on a tundra boot. And they're all, you know, done in in collaboration with, you know, either indigenous people or experts on living in those biomes to make the appropriate footwear for, you know, the, the, those essential biomes from across the world. So you know, you can enjoy the most beautiful, stunning parts of the world in a pair of barefoot shoes. What project are you most proud of in all the years of Vivo? Is there a particular shoe or project or something you've done that you look back on and you're most proud of? Oh, pride is a terrible sin. <laughs> but, um, you know, the deadliest of all the sins. Um, so I'll try not to be, but you know, I'm, I'm excited about, well, first thing I'd say is like, you know, I'm, 
we're, I'm excited about the progress we're making in general. I think, you know, like we have a, a goal to make shoes that have minimum impact on, on the human body and, and minimum impact on, on the planet. And in fact, be regenerative to the human body and ultimately regenerative to the planet. And we're not perfect on, on any regard yet. So, but we're learning how to make shoes from more and more natural materials that can ultimately be uh, biodegradable. And we're learning how to make shoes truly circular where they can be chemically recycled and you can make shoes, not just new shoes, not just from old shoes, but from also other forms of waste, um, shall we say. And that's a never end, that feels like a sort of never ending project to completely close the loop. No more shoes ever go into landfill. Um, and setting up then the circular business models around shoemaking. The, the world makes 24 billion pairs of shoes every year. Nearly all of them end up in landfill. Nearly all of them don't fit. They definitely don't connect you close to nature, and they, most of them do quite a lot of harm to you. So the shoe industry is like a, a real problem in the world, and you know we want to be part of the solution. And we ultimately see that solution actually as going back to making shoes the same way humans made them tens of thousands of years ago, where it's person by person, foot by foot. And modern technology actually suddenly gives the opportunity to now with the um, LIDAR scanning technology in most mobile phones, you can 3D scan your foot. And then with that 3D scan, we can make a shoe bespoke to you. And eventually, we'd, hopefully there'll be a little factory close to wherever you live or a little printing facility and we'd be able to make a shoe really perfectly fitting for you because regardless of anything else you know we've we've looked at with a company we work with called volumental in sweden they they have a database of 20 million foot scans so within those all those foot scans you can look at everyone that would be a size eight should we say right and within let's say a million size eights the variety of shapes within a size eight of, of arch heights and, and widths and bridge height and um, you know general sort of thickness or thinness, toe shapes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is extraordinary. So you can easily ascertain from those million size eights that very very you know a, a minority of people we think about forty percent of people are only are ever wearing a pair of shoes that sort of vaguely fits them. Because if you've got very wide feet, you're almost definitely wearing shoes that are too long for you. If you've got very, very narrow feet, you're probably wearing shoes that are, are too short for you, et cetera, et cetera, just on a very basic level. And then, then there's lots of other dynamics at play. So you know, most people, at least 60% of people, are walking around every day in shoes that are effectively not, you know, don't fit. And, that's, and, and, if you, and, and if you wear shoes that don't fit, then, then, you sh then your feet work less well. And if your feet work less well, then the rest of your body works less well. You enjoy moving less, get injured more. And, you know, it's, it's not a happy place to be. And so, yeah, we, we feel like, you know, there's a long, long way to go to make the shoe industry a place that is associated with happy feet and a happy planet. As we close out today's conversation, I want you to speak to someone who came in today's conversation. I'm sure most of my listeners have heard of Vivo from me talking about them and my experience with them. But let's just, for the sake of the argument, say someone came into today's conversation, has never heard of Vivo, and more importantly, has never heard of the concept of just 
barefoot, walking bare, even if it's just walking barefoot or getting out in nature more barefoot, what would your final take home message be for those people? Definitely walk before you can run. First and foremost, just take it easy. Um, you know, and, and I know in, in your in your work, you're, you're you're supporting people going faster and faster and training and, and realizing their natural potential. And, you know, I would say that sometimes it's good to go backwards to go forwards. And Vivos will, if you transition to Vivos, you will have to go for a period of running slower and taking it easier before you then can run faster and in a more natural way. So just, you know, and if, if you are interested in making that transition, I think you'll, I think you'll run longer and happier and healthier injury free if you do it right and you do it well. Um, you know, and so just, I would encourage people to consider that. And if, if they do, then just pre- be prepared for it to take a little while and take your time. And, um, I think, you know, I, I think ultimately, getting back to natural, healthy running, where most importantly, your posture's upright, your rhythm is quick, your cadence is quick, and you're you're relaxed and smiling and laughing, like a five-year-old girl running around a swimming pool. Um, so, because, you know, the research shows that there's no reason why, you know, you, you get to a certain ability in running, let's say, at the age of 19, and let's say endurance running. And I think it shows that, you know, you, you then peak when you're in about your early thirties, give or take five years, depending on who it is. But then, and, and this is just your, your natural human potential, right? That your physiology, and then you don't go back to your 19 year old level from your um, natural biology until you're in your sixties. So 60 people in their 60s should be able to run at the same level as they were when they were 19 years old if they just look after themselves and do the basic kind of uh, you know healthy lifestyle not many 60 year olds can run at their at their 19 year old level and it'd be great to see more 60 year olds being able to move at the same level as they could when they were 19 what a wonderful world that would be so you know i, I play the long game is the point right don't forgo a little bit of give a little bit of short-term pain to get back to those natural uh those natural ways you know mother nature is the boss you've got amazing bodies you've got amazing natural potential and real you know allowing your feet to get their full natural potential back well your the rest of your body will thank you for that Galahad, it's been a fantastic conversation. Two quick questions for you. I got to know. You're on earth, you know, final week of your life. You can only choose one pair of Vivos to have for that week. Which <laughs> pair are you choosing? Which model? Uh, well, gosh. It's, I mean, it, it, would, it would imply that there's a terrible kind of ecological crisis happening. And the world is sort of coming to an end. So I'd have to choose a pair of our ecological survival collection boots <laughs> forest tracker there you and go the forest tracker is is really and and hiking is a great way to get into barefoot actually and because and the hiking boots are obviously are slightly thicker soles because they've got grip and so get yourself a pair of esc forest trackers and go hiking and walk when you walk in nature you naturally take shorter steps overstriding is the scourge of unnatural movement and that's the scourge of um you know padded shoes they allow you to overstride it's all about just 
even even when you're walking just take slightly shorter steps and that that that's you know just what you naturally do when you walk barefoot on a hard surface and that's a pretty good uh, marker as to how you should just move naturally so yeah hiking in nature is a good thing final question for in you shoes. the question i ask every guest on every single podcast and i always laugh when i have on a uk guest because it's particularly funny for them the question is if you had gordon ramsay coming over to your house for dinner what would you choose to make for him oh um i would choose to make um uh, a, a vodka beetroot risotto mm. that's my kind of that is my signature dish that is um at the heart of every sort of you know when I need to impress my wife to get out of the doghouse. Um, and, the, you know, you introduce the vodka quite early on and it just sort of gets into the rice molecules and then cooks off and then, you know, in comes... And it, so it's, it's really sort of... It's magnificent looking because it's sort of, you know, um, this sort of very flamboyant magento-coloured um, dish and, and you can dress it all up with lots of fun stuff, so... But at the heart of it, it's it's sort of you know, and you put maybe a little bit of blue cheese, goat cheese in there, and it's just sweet and savoury, and uh, you know everything you ever want in a dish. It's all the so, spots. Yeah, Gordon would appreciate that. <laughs> Galahad, it's been an absolute fantastic time learning from you, speaking with you, and uh, yeah, I just want to say appreciate all you're doing with Vivo Barefoot and uh, all you'll continue to do because I feel like every month you guys are coming out with some new project that's changing the world in its own way. So appreciate you and keep up uh, the great work. Thank you. And, uh, you know, happy, happy uh, Barefoot Steps. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. I don't take your time for granted, so I hope that it brought you some wisdom and value that you can apply directly into your running and into your life. If you have not already done so, please consider giving us a follow and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And then something all of you guys can do is share today's episode or the podcast in general with a friend or someone who you think will benefit from it. One more note, if you're not already following us on Instagram, consider doing so. My Instagram tag is at The Running Effect. I hope your running and life is going well. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to listen to today's episode. I will catch you in two days when the next episode drops. Until then, happy running.